Hey friends, this is Holly Bame Lytle, and you're listening to Isaac's Autism in the Wild podcast, where we focus on topics related to raising loved ones touched by autism and its impact on relationships and family. I'll be sharing some of my personal parenting experiences, raising my son Isaac, who passed away in 2007, as well as an entirely different parenting experience as I now raise my son Caleb, who never ceases to blow my mind with his beautiful autism perspectives. So grab a drink and join me as I interview this week's panel of exceptional autism parents was did you do and try everything for your child with autism and you know from my perspective Holly Isaac Foundation having had two kids with autism different function and abilities when I parented Isaac again I've said this before you know this was you know 14 years ago and I was bound and determined to try and um, figure out a way to make him into a round peg to fit into that hole even though he was a square so I was literally there was not a stone that I left unturned when it came to how we were going to help him be the best that he can be and finally fit in that round pig. And I will tell you that the day he passed away, and you're looking back at your parenting experience, and I know that none of you guys here, thankfully, have ever had to live through that nightmare of losing a child, but I will tell you that there was a lot of comfort on that day knowing that I tried everything. And, you know, some things worked, some things didn't, but I had a lot of comfort in knowing that um, I didn't leave any stone unturned. And when I built the Isaac Foundation, it was with the premise of I want I didn't want other parents to have to have look back at their adult child and say, man, you know, you know, they're amazing. But I wish that we would have had the benefit of X or Y or Z because of, you know, insurance and how it was structured or financial ability to be able to make that happen. And so my thought was, is if I could give parents the gift of being able to try and experience some of these things that maybe were financially not attainable, then they would be able to experience that comfort in knowing, did your best. Your child is their best um, because you had the opportunity when you wanted to be able to try some of those things. You know, it's funny because now, okay, here we're going to fast forward. Now I'm the parent of, of Caleb who has high functioning autism and he's 10 years old. So who knew on that day that I was evaluating this, that I would have another child with autism and I would then be tasked with that same question because now here we are, we are 10 years, you know, down the road with Caleb. And I will look back and I will tell you, I have a lot of parent guilt because my 100% with Isaac is different than my 42-year-old Holly self with four kids at home and trying to manage this. And there's a lot of other components. And, you know, when Isaac was little, it was just Isaac and Tyler. And so, you know, they were 11 months apart. And so in some capacities, it was a lot easier because of the fact that they were close together in age. They were both boys. Now with Caleb, he's one of, you know, three, now four, because we've added another child into our home. And my 100% looks a lot different now because Mm -hmm. I'm older. I'm tired. You know, obviously I run a foundation now. I also recognize that, you know, I can't sacrifice everything for just one. I have to balance that differently. And, um, um, finances being what they are. Financially, I can't afford to do some of the things that I would have liked to do for Caleb. There's just so many things that I have a lot of guilt. I also recognize that parent guilt looks like me limiting him and like sheltering him from a world that I feel judges his him unfairly. The amount of parent guilt that I have with Caleb is so much more. And yet I feel like I know so much more. And yet I have more guilt parenting Caleb than I I have that I had when I was the parent of Isaac. So that's just one example of what parent guilt looks like in, in terms of my life. 
This is Christine. Uh, Cameron is 11. High functioning autism. I was just trying to figure out where my parent guilt lies. I keep coming back to Cam is in a lot of in a lot of therapy, and so he goes to school all day. I mean, he leaves the house about 7.30 and he's done with school about 2.30. And then we do therapy every day of the week except for Saturdays and Sundays until about 5.30, 6 o'clock at night. So I find that my parent guilt is directed around that. Like, am I, am I providing Cameron a childhood? Because all he does is work. It's just all work. It's all work. And I balance that with the work we do today hopefully means that much more for the rest of his life. But it's still, I mean, literally when we look at his schedule and we try and pack in something that's fun, I think he can't do that because we have therapy. We can't, I'm getting better, I'm getting better. We now have him in some, you know, sports things and, and that takes away from our therapy time. But I think I've found value in doing those fun things because there's still therapy value in that. He's learning a new skill, you know, so it's, I think that's where my guilt is. Am I being fair to Cameron in making him do all the work that he does so that we can hopefully get him to a place? Like, I, I think I just keep thinking long-term. And is my, is my long-term goal, that end of the tunnel goal, preventing me from seeing what's right in front of me? You know, am I just looking down the, this tunnel and not seeing the view that is right outside my window right now? Like, what is it right now that I'm missing because I'm so focused on the end of the tunnel? That's part of my parent guilt. I'm John, and I'm Cooper's dad. He's uh, low-functioning. And I will tell you that I took a different approach, thinking that early on I worked two and three jobs uh, to pay for things, and I really feel guilty because I feel like I should have probably been interacting with him more instead of relying on someone else, instead of, you know, to take him to a therapist or something else. And I, th I think that he responded to some of the therapies, but I feel like after watching it, my dad has had some success with him just interacting with him because... It's a familiar face. He knows how Cooper is. A lot of the therapists, you know, it takes them some time to figure out what's your kid or what makes them tick. And so I have guilt in respect that I felt like I was providing the resources necessary to make that happen, but I wasn't as active in his therapy as I should have been. And that's something that I have to live with, and it's something that I'm going to try and correct. I mean, I went to the point of I bought a hyperbaric chamber because I read a study about traumatic brain injury, which our kiddos have a neurological problem. You know, their, their brains don't function in the typical way. So I went out and I worked and I bought a hyperbaric chamber. Well, the problem was is that the gut and intestinal issues that he had, it exacerbated that. When you put them under pressure and 100% oxygen, that yeast goes absolutely apeshit. So I figured out that, well, that was clearly the wrong approach. So if anybody out there needs a hyperbaric <laughs> But, you know, I think the thing of it is, is that, you know, I, I feel bad because uh, nobody knows my kiddo like I do and I feel that I had more of a background and you know just sitting here doing these podcasts I've learned so much about the parents that are doing so much for their kiddos and their quality of life is so much better that I actually feel pretty good about it because I know Cooper's life from this point forward is going to be much better. I'm Shelly with 19 year old Amy and I think I can 
kind of relate to John in that and 19 years ago I didn't feel like there was that inform much information about autism and she was in a preschool program that was specifically we were told for autistic children and then was in an elementary program for the same and I didn't know a lot about autism at that time and trusted that those people knew what they were talking about and for years well first it was weeks and then months it's Amy's gonna talk at any time she is so smart she understands everything it's just her expressive language any minute she's gonna talk and then that weeks turns into months turns into years and I remember her saying but don't we need to do something else doesn't she need to be an AB therapy I knew a little bit about AB therapy but not a lot don't we need to do something else shouldn't she be in some other type of therapy no 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 what we're providing is great she doesn't need any more she'll be pushed too much and I went with that for years She's never done ABA therapy. And now her speech therapist is saying, you need to put her in ABA therapy, you know, at 19. Yeah, and so, you know, I and want to. Yeah, and it's a year and a half. Yeah, yeah, it's a wait list. So I have extreme guilt for just kind of taking a back seat and letting the quote, professionals do what they knew you know, they're professionals, they should know what she needs. And I feel like we did a huge disservice to her because we didn't do all of these other things. And sitting here listening to it, I mean, it makes me feel worse in a way because it's yeah, like, sure. I think her potential was and is probably still great, but I think she could have accomplished so much more than where she's at. But you know, and I've had this conversation with other parents, so I'm gonna just pipe in right now because when I look at back at my 19 year old self and who I was, and I'm looking at my 42 year old self now, Look at all of the change and development I have experienced yes. as an adult. So it yes. makes me, it infuriates me when you have these medical professionals yes. and people telling me that, oh, well, you lost your window. And that was, I was fighting that same thing. Everybody's telling me zero to three. And then when Isaac turned three, I'm thinking, okay, I'm not going to say the word that I yelled, but it was like, now I've lost it. You know what I'm saying now? And then it's like, cause now we're older than three. Then you hear another science. Oh, well, you know what? There until the age of five. Now you have till the age of five. So you're plugging along and you're hoping and doing all of this crazy stuff. And then, you know, at some point you got to hit the like, you know, time out here. Because again, when you think about yourself as a person, are you the same person that you were when you were um, five years old well, yeah, or 19 years that? old? Hell no. Would so, we ever say that no, to a nerd? You would never say that to a nerd. Oh, you have reached your full potential yeah. at 18, 19 18, or whatever. Yeah. And I am telling you, there is no one on this planet and there is no medical degree out there that is going to sit there and tell me that just because they're now adults and they're aging out of high school that that's it we're done people peace yeah. out i'm sorry but i still think and i actually want to introduce you to someone that actually their niche is the older kids um, and that's their target that the ones that they love to work with because again not limited in that oh wait oh so we're stopping here oh no you watch me we're yep. gonna actually go to a new level so yep. i'm just telling you that i i do i hear exactly what you're saying because mm -hmm. people they program you into believing that well, well, I don't think we educated like you were saying. Yeah. You know, it was about education too. And back yeah. then, you just trust the educational system. We, yeah. you know, we weren't financially in the right place. So it's like, okay, well, they're telling us this. So yeah. we're going to believe it. Yeah. We're going to believe it. So we started ABA therapy at like age four for Cameron because we um, were in the military. We moved back to the States. Then we were able to access that. We couldn't access it overseas. At about age seven or eight, our therapists reached the end of their knowledge, not Cameron's potential, yeah. the end of their knowledge. They didn't have the skills and tools. The older that he got, you know what that meant? I found a different provider because again, you know, as Holly said, you can find a provider that has determined that they can apply the same principles to adult children. So 
You can't tell me that, oh, he's going to age out of this therapy. I'm like, no, he's not. So I'm thrilled that you guys are on a wait list. I'm excited for Amy's potential once you're able to get on that because nobody can tell you that you're just gonna stop growing even our kids even our kids are not gonna stop growing and learning and reaching more and I'm gonna go on record too and say that this is an age range that I feel like needs to have to have more focus and study because again I really feel like there's a ton of progress that can be made but again we're just so fixated on you know yeah sure the earlier we catch it the better yeah but why are we not spending time and energy and a lot of time energy and resources to still look at these young adults and say hey I got a plan this is what we're gonna do yeah watch my watch my mama guilt turn into mama bear anger I'm mad that this yeah. is what they told you in the past like I'm angry for you I'm well then when you get the schools reinforcing well you know they're really not gonna have speech speech isn't gonna develop after about age 12 you know? guess what reality is is that they don't just stop growing yeah, yeah. okay they're going to be 18 19 20 27 yeah. 30 35 and guess what you know they need um housing you know options they have to have employment options so guess what people wake up and start focusing attention and our our young our teenagers and our young adults we've definitely moved from guilt to rage <laughs> Guilt here. So he he started repeating things at two, two and a half. His speech developed and he started putting words together and then started putting sentences together. And you get, well, and we went on this like teeter totter back and forth. Should we evaluate him? Should we not? Should we? We're like, keep talking. And we're like, oh, he's social. He loves socializing with Mm -hmm. other kids. But it didn't become obvious until he started kindergarten that he wasn't socializing appropriately. Yes. Like that he had those major social skills deficits, but it wasn't obvious until he was around a bunch of kids in kindergarten. Yes. It became so much more obvious his deficits. He's very verbal, but those social skills just weren't there. Feels like you should you should have known somehow. Like you should have known. You should have known. But you know what? That's not the case because you don't know what you don't know. You are a parent and you have this idea of what it looks like. And then if your child doesn't fit that mold, because Cameron didn't. Because when I started, when I had my suspicions, it was like, oh, well, they're uncoordinated and clumsy and they don't form attachments. And I'm like, my child, my two-year-old child, or my 11-month-old child, truly, because we got his diagnosis just after he turned two, but my 11-month-old child was walking and climbing and not clumsy and had amazing balance. And, you know, you go to the you go to the sites that say, well, okay, could he be autistic? Well, no, because he's not clumsy. And, he, and he, does he love me and kiss me and hug uh-huh. me and show attention and is happy when daddy comes home from work? And I'm like, okay, well, that's not autistic, so clearly he can't be autistic. Yeah. So, again, you can have guilt over not knowing or not mm-hmm. seeing it or not recognizing well, it, but I had to give myself a little yeah. grace because yeah. I, well, I like, didn't know what I didn't know. And right before my son was evaluated by the school district because he had been in early intervention right before he turned three. And, you know, while they are not qualified to give an actual diagnosis, they still did the ADOS and, and he interacted wonderfully with the person who was evaluating him because he was, was a, a good social. Day. Yeah. 
He yep. was a social child, Absolutely. but it was in a set environment. His only thing that he didn't do well on was his pretend play, and that yep. was about it. And so they're like, oh, this child's, I mean, just has this developmental delay. That's what they qualified him under. And, and it did it. And then so when he was five, you know, he finally got diagnosed because he is higher functioning and he can, he's very verbal, which throws people for a loop with some of his yes. challenges. And so my husband was in denial thinking he's just a quirky kid, but it's become now that my son is now eight and in third grade, the gap is increasing. So like what wasn't so obvious even quite in kindergarten is yeah. becoming so much more obvious as he ages. Yes. And then again, you go back to that whole, like you said, Shelly, you, you expect the experts to know and then you you rely on on what they tell you and it's hard to get past the whole but they said Mm -hmm. this i think that they suggested this get you lulled into a sense that you're like doing great or everything's fine and then you get used to hair yeah (laughs) yep yeah yeah and that's where my biggest complaint I think sometimes too though you also have to see when you know the provider may be saying oh they're doing so well and they're learning this or doing that but you have to look at them as a parent too and evaluate it and say you know what is this time I'm spending on this therapy is it worthwhile is this really getting what yeah. I want them to do? You have to be critical, too. Mm-hmm. And you kind of have to hold their feet to the fire a bit and say, okay, well, you say they're doing great. And I want you to qualify that. What does that mean? Where are you talking about this This great therapy is going? What are we What are we doing here, number one? What, you're, what are you trying to accomplish? Because I'm not seeing at home, I'm not seeing any behaviors that exhibit to me that they're doing better at all. I think, too, you get as a society, I don't think that we have been taught not to question people in certain positions. Yeah. And yeah. that, I think, is a real problem, too, is, yeah. is that, you know, doctors and providers don't like being questioned because they have all of this special training and stuff. And that's where I am not liked by probably some providers because, you know, I get that you went to college for this, but I am a subject matter expert on this person. And so that makes me an expert to some degree when I'm trying to tell you this or I'm asking questions questions about that. And I will tell you too, early on with my Isaac experience, I was very uncomfortable about questioning providers and people, you know, in these roles, because you're taught to not question. These are people that you respect and you don't question what they're saying. Now, fast forward again, you know, I'm teen years. And now it's like, I have pissed off some providers. And I've said on other podcasts, I've had providers that say, I'm not comfortable working with Holly's kid because she's critical and she's going to question this and that and the other. And it's like, you know what? I'm glad that you communicated this because I can't work with you either. Because if you won't allow me to question it, then we are definitely not going to get along. But, you know, again, I guess maybe a little bit of guilt would be that you know again you don't know what you don't know so you're not comfortable questioning or asking questions and you do you're lulled into that sense that everybody knows what they're talking about and they're experts so hey we're good right you know i'm just piggybacking what john said i mean i feel guilt too because one of the last speech therapists we had we spent two probably two years with that therapist and we were she was playing Candyland and it was a bunny game funny bunny or something like that (laughs) every day I mean every time we went and we never never really progressed but you kind of get lulled into thinking this is leading to some something down the road and but we spent two years and I do feel guilty in a way there because you know we continue to go and fortunately we we moved on but you know that's two years where it could have been going somewhere else and you know she could have been expanding and doing something differently so talk about that so with her new speech therapist is she then making better progress that you're more comfortable with? And does that change kind of that expectation that you have for other providers? 
Yeah, I mean, going back now, we have a communication specialist, and she's been able to, obviously, through the iPad, because she's nonverbal, there's more area to grow, and her vocabulary has grown incredibly, and it would never have thought. So, yeah, we from moving on, we've been able to see her grow in that way. And well, and I'm she's the one that's integrated the food prep and yeah. those types of Well, that's of true, too. too. Yeah, everything that I've seen recently, she's been able to do that. And helped in the school setting, also, with their vocabulary and increasing it and what Amy is capable of. I would say that it's rare if ever to find a parent that doesn't feel guilty. I, I mean, I think it's just natural. I think a parent, I mean, I can look at all of my kids and say, I have guilt or like, oh gosh, I could have done better here or that or the other. There's lots of areas. So we've touched mostly on this one about getting the diagnosis and getting the therapies and too much therapy, not enough therapy, changing therapies, listening to providers, yada, yada. There's lots of different places where we can feel parent guilt. And maybe, you know, we do a podcast on this idea of parent guilt, but I'd like to also touch on one where we feel parent guilt about other things. In another podcast, we talked about what's fair to our other children. We have parent guilt surrounding that. I personally don't have another child. Cameron is our only child. I sometimes feel a lot of guilt about not having a sibling for him. A sibling that might be able to take care of Cameron. I mean, when my husband and I are gone, Cameron's on his own. I feel a lot of guilt about that. But yet we made the decision, again, being driven by parent guilt, we made the decision to not have any more children because we got Cameron's diagnosis at two. About the time we probably would have thought about having another child and I just said, Cameron's gonna need every resource we have. We can't do that to another child. I can't ask another child to have less because Cameron needs so much. So I struggle with that kind of parent guilt. So maybe we can't do one podcast on all the parent guilt that you can have having a special needs child. No, I totally agree. But this is where too, you know, I completely sympathize with what you're saying and you have to make tough decisions as parents. You know, being a parent, you're doing the best that you can, making the best choices you can mm -hmm. in the circumstances that you're given, which means that you're going to have guilt, but you're just, you're doing your best, you know, and, and that's really all you can do. I think you just get up every day, you do the best you can, you make the decisions that you think are best for you and your family, and then hopefully this can normalize. Yes, exactly. Exactly. If you're hearing this podcast and you're hearing the different ways that you can feel that parent guilt, it's very normal. It is normal and you're not so alone. And that's, yes. I guess, where through all of this, you are not alone. There yes. is not a parent out there, whether typical or, you know, neurotypical. This Neuro tribe? This tribe. Is, this tribe is giving you yeah. a high five right yep. now because yep. you are not alone. In you're, doing, you're doing awesome. So anyway, well, we're going to end there. And again, this isn't going to be the only time you're going to hear this particular topic of parent guilt because it manages in a lot of different ways, in a lot of different areas. And I think it's important to always pull in different parents, different perspectives, just to help normalize those, those feelings that you're having. So we'll end here. Thank you guys for joining me. These are not easy topics to talk about. Um, just understand that. But I do appreciate you guys taking time out of your day to come in and, and share some of this with other people. With that, we're going to sign off on this episode of Isaac's Autism in the Wild. And that's it for now. If you want to be notified of our next podcast release, be sure to hit subscribe. And just remember, we're all in this together. So find your tribe and hold them tight.